Hello, and welcome to the sixth episode of the Architect's Purpose Podcast. This episode is quite great because it is all about the Fountainhead revisited. This was all about what the first episode was building on, and that's really the struggle between the individual and the collective in abstract, but in more detailed, it's how do you take the opinions of others? Do you hold the opinions of your peers higher than some arbitrary critic, or do you hold the deeds of the public above all, or is there something within you that you are able to stand on and to truly be that driving force of your own life. And so this discussion focuses a lot on the book, but it also weaves into some very practical anecdotes. And it's really that struggle between the extremes because the author, Ayn Rand, really sets up these extreme person uh, uh, these extreme characters of extremely individualistic and extremely altruistic and what is that real balance because none of us are ever really those extremes nor do those extremes actually work so i find this episode both theoretically inspiring but also very practically helpful and it's really reflecting back on the past five episodes from Keating and Rourke to Bernaleski to to Burnham and Franklin Wright and Philip Johnson and to Cropius through modernism into really today and it's quite a discussion that balances both the practical and the theoretical. So I hope all of y'all enjoy. Really, it's the chopping off point and one of the foundational um, texts of, of how we think. But also, it's almost a text that, to me, reveals what I've thought and felt versus passing down some dogma of you have to follow X, Y, and Z, because to me, the aspect of the individual just seems so self-evident and that all of us experience as this singular consciousness and through the fountainhead and especially all of Ayn Rand's push for objectivism, it seems to almost a prize of its own accord rather than having to, to, to be one-size-fits-all collectivism, dogmatism, whatever you want to call it. But um, And for me, it was interesting because whenever I took the class, we only read the first part of the book, even though I had read it prior to printing it again, but printing it in South for basically a third time. And um, I always love and enjoy printing books multiple times. And it takes reading quite a bit to get that comfortable. But also this class was one that I was forced to read like almost a book a week or so. So it sped up that cognitive ability and then I've kept it some at home after um, school, but it's interesting to revisit it after f- focusing on all of these really incredible pillars of architectural history and our own. So um, what were some of the things that, that the class focused on upon revisiting the fountainhead after reading about real life architects? <laughs> Um, so it's always interesting to think about this is a fictitious book and how it relates to the actual profession. Uh, so one of the one of the questions I asked them was, um, uh, so uh, Ellsworth Tui got together this what this group of uh, American writers, 
and they talked about criticism. So in the book, um, uh, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright versus, versus Johnson, um, or The Odd Couple, I think that my personal opinion is that the birth of the architectural critic uh, was uh, was revealed uh, because I think before, really before Johnson uh, and before what his curation at MoMA, the role of the architectural critic didn't quite exist. If you look at, um, I mean, I'm sure there were people with opinions about architecture, but the role of you know, an actual prize of its own accord, rather than having to, to, to be one size fits all collectivism, dogmatism, whatever you want to call it. But um, and for me, it was interesting because whenever I took the class, we only read the first part of the book, even though I had read it prior to printing it again, but printing it in South for basically a third time. And um, I always love and enjoy printing books multiple times. And it takes reading quite a bit to get that comfortable. But also this class was one that I was forced to read like almost a book a week or so. So it sped up that cognitive ability and then I've kept it some at home after um, school, but it's interesting to revisit it after f focusing on all of these really incredible pillars of architectural history and our own. So um, what were some of the things that, that the class focused on upon revisiting the Fountainhead after reading about real life architects? <laughs> Um, so it's always interesting to think about this is a fictitious book and how it relates to the actual profession. Uh, so one of the one of the questions I asked them was, um, uh, so uh, Ellsworth Tui got together this what this group of uh, American writers, and they talked about criticism. So in the book, um, uh, you know. Frank Lloyd Wright versus, versus Johnson, um, or The Odd Couple. Uh, I, I, I think that my personal opinion is that the birth of the architectural critic uh, was, uh, was revealed. Uh, because I think before, really before Johnson, uh, and before what his curation at MoMA, the role of the architectural critic didn't quite exist. If you look at, um, I mean, I'm sure there were people with opinions about architecture, but the role of, you know, an actual profession related to architectural criticism didn't really exist. And so you take somebody, so you take that out of context and you look at the fictitious uh, creation of Ellsworth Tui and his role as uh, an architectural critic or just as a critic in general. Um, so he, he he gathered this group of American writers, and, and I can't remember the name of the play, but uh, one of the questions that I asked them was, you know, do you remember, you know, forget the name of the play, but do you remember the substance of the argument related to that play? Do you remember that? Yeah, and, well, I don't remember say the plot of the play exactly, but what but really stuck out to me was that strive towards almost mediocrity and and the general consensus being something that almost all men could do instead of something absolutely incredible that only one percent could do so part of it was you know i think the most revealing statement is that if a if a critic of a play or of, of a building or of a piece of literature if they agreed with that piece, they are uh, essentially just becoming a, a reporter of, uh, you know, the actions that happen in the play. Let's talk about the play. Uh, instead of, uh, isn't it much more difficult to convince the general public that a bad play is good instead of saying, you know, that a good play is actually good? 
and isn't it much more challenging at, from a critical point of view to um, get people to <laughs> go against their own natural instincts of good versus bad, or I like this versus don't like it. If you say as an architectural critic, this play is good, or I'm sorry, as a, as a, a theater critic, this play is good, all of a sudden people will go to it and, and see it. And isn't that much more triumphal in that role as a theater critic uh, to espouse something bad as something good. So that was the question I posed to them, and there was a lot of interesting discussion about that. Because it seems also, though, there's no question of morality and ethics. It's looking at it like more of just the challenge and the difficulty, because, I mean, in my mind, wouldn't a critic doing their role want to try and have whatever it is aspire to be as great as it could be and some fresh or some different eyes would offer something and tend to um, So what, why, would, why would a critic say something? I mean, so they all gathered together and they all agreed that this play was shite, right? Um, yeah. But yet the whole premise of it was to put it forth as this you know, brilliant piece of uh, theater. And, and, and what would motivate them to do that? I mean, part of it is what you said, is that uh, it, it's so hard for the general public to recognize the brilliance in something. Um, and, uh, but if you can raise the level of mediocrity to something that is accepted, you know, nationally or, you know, within a community, um, you know, you, you establish something for yourself. And so these people were not out to um, do the role that they were actually hired to do, which is to provide criticism, true criticism about the theater, but it was to um, almost, you know, pull the wool over the public's eyes to say something that was bad is good. And Tui was just eating this up. Because were they all just also doing it under the guise of altruism as well? Because Ian Brand does this interesting thing where when she prides and someone's actually doing something malicious, they're making a, a potentially morally superior argument when doing it. And, and through that own hubris and that own really blind quest for power overprides any true rules of morality. Right. So that, I mean, that was, you know, again, another point that she made was that, you know, those people who are on the sideline, what is their ultimate goal? Their ultimate goal is what is power is the, um, the uh, accumulation of power to be able to, you know, drive people's opinion one way or another. That's, that is the significance of power. Um, so, you know, it creates this very interesting dichotomy between, you know, those, you know, if you tell somebody that a play is good when it's actually bad, it throws off their sensibility of, of, of how they accept things. And so when a good play actually comes along, they're not able to um, analyze it. They're not able to make their own uh, impression of it. And so it falls into the Keating world where he was moved by public opinion. If public opinion said this was good, he designed in that way. If it was, you know, if public opinion said this was bad, he, he shied away from that. Whereas Rourke had an internal compass that said, this was right, this is what I, I wanted to do, this, this is the correct way to do I don't really care what public opinion is, I'm gonna follow this path. So I'm not quite sure, um, you know, we're, you know, again, it was a really interesting discussion with, with regard to how the role of the architectural critic plays on the production of architecture. But I'm sure we all 
I mean, you know, I've had a long, a long history, a long career, and for me, it's not the architectural criticism, but it's my, but it, but I still thrive on peer recognition. That if I submit an award for, you know, against my peers, that's evaluated by my peers, and let's just call it the AIA for a minute, and I win an award, I, I have some sense of self satisfaction that I pleased my peers. And so then I have to evaluate, you know, is that a is that a working idea or is that a Keating idea? And um, you know, it it it, it 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 causes me consternation. I mean, I, I do seek peer recognition. I think we all do. I mean, I think we all seek the desire to be recognized and approved by those who we respect. But you know, this outside group of architectural critics, you know, I'm not quite sure whether that's the right group to seek your respect from. I think it, it, you, know, you should seek respect from those uh, and, and, and adoration from those who, uh, who you truly do admire. And I can see how that can cause you some distress almost pointing that peer recognition. I mean, and, and I, anyone who says they don't is just flat out lying. And I think that's a heavy point of the book and it's played out with the extremes to take that point of you can't fall into that trap of only needing someone else's approval. I mean, we've all put to school or worked with the person who is always asking, hey, do you like this? Do you approve? It's like, bro, it's your design, your job, your project, bring something of substance so we can so we can actually contend with each other versus, oh yeah, that's great. And then if I say it's it's bad, then you cry or like, I don't know, you know, um, it's, and. So, so let's apply that to the actual studio environment for a minute mm -hmm. uh, when you when you do a pinup you know it's it's your final review and and you do a pinup and all the the critics that are evaluating it are presumably people you admire they're your professors they're you know hopefully some people from you know the outside that are evaluating it and everybody is saying things that are good and positive toward it it gives you a sense of self-satisfaction. And then when you know, your other classmates are receiving criticism that isn't so positive, you also, you, you, if you receive positive criticism and they receive negative criticism, it, it, um, it makes you feel better about yourself. <laughs> and and, and is, that, is that a good thing or a bad thing? And again, I, you know, this is the question that I pose to the class. I think it just is, and we just can't feed into it too much because also you can't listen to the people that hate on you as much as the people who who praise you equally because if you only or if you weigh praise over hate or vice versa, then you can easily feed into to the spiral instead of. First and first and for most, being able to stand on your own two feet and whatever you are trying to 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 achieve. <clears throat> so one of the other questions I asked them were um, were Gail Winan. So obviously the third chapter is all about Winan. It's about you know it's chapter title was Gail Winan, you know his upbringing and all all of the things that he went through. So. How would you compare and contrast Dominique versus Gail Winant? Were they the were they the same? Were they different? I mean, if they were different, how were they different? They were for sure very different on their morals and and beliefs. As in, Dominique really felt that Winant his corruption or his um. Beliefs were so off track that it couldn't be brought back to it 
back to something more presentable and partly because i mean from the early on he saw the or he had an immediate distrust of the media and these so-called institutions really just slandering someone who shouldn't have been slandered at all and that resentment and hatred pretty fueled him but also corrupted him but i would argue that they both have outcomes that are similar. They both are striking down what is good and praising up what is bad or at least mediocre and doing it at times for different reasons, but they still really push the public and the collective in their output of work, but not in their internal dialogue and like i don't know how they live with that sort of cognitive dissonance <laughs> well you know i think i would disagree with you on that i think Winan was giving the public what they wanted so he was doing in a sense everything that Ellsworth Tui was espousing he was you know and he wasn't necessarily you know saying you know the the good is bad and, and the bad is good but he was you know, he was placating, he was playing to the general public. Like if the general public felt like they wanted to hear about this issue or that issue, um, I mean, that's that's where he made his fortune. But I think in his internal, he still had an internal compass that was the opposite. I mean, he knew what he was doing in a sense was wrong, but he was doing it for, um, you know, the ultimate profit of, of his company. Um, and, and yet privately, you know, he was hiring work to design his own home. Um, and he recognized the brilliance that existed in, in Rourke, as did Dominique. I mean, Dominique, um, you know, she at first sought to tear him down because she didn't want the world to have access to him. I think that, you know, they had different motivations for playing to the, the um, you know, playing playing to the, you know, the, the everyday opinion. But, you know, I think there were aspects of them both that were very, very similar. Yet at the same time, I think that ultimately, and this is probably in the fourth chapter, and not the third chapter, I can't remember, um, ultimately Winan, you know, during the, 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 the trial uh, of the... Um, you know, the Cortland Holmes, uh, he couldn't bring himself to, you know, side with Rourke. He, he couldn't, um, he couldn't make that stand. And even though, you know, after everybody abandoned him and he really tried to uphold Rourke, ultimately he gave in. Um, and, uh, and, and, and that's one of the things that Dominique didn't do. She didn't, she did, ultimately didn't give in. She held her position. And I think that there was, an interesting moment that was brought out. So, um, you know, to, to back up for a minute, you know, I was showing the, the students the movie, and uh, it, and so it, I told them, I, you know, I'm trying to write a screenplay for it because I think the old movie is just such a horrible thing. But they got the first chapter right, and they got the fourth chapter, or, or the first part right and the fourth part right. But all the stuff in between was all kind of jumbled up. It was all yeah. different than the book, right? It was too fast. Yeah. But but ultimately, the way they played the trial and the way they showed the fact that um, you know Rourke was making a stand for why he blew up Portland Homes, it wasn't supported by Winan. Winan ended up you know walking out on, on on the trial, or you know at the end of it when he was acquitted, Winan didn't you know, embrace, you know, this, this triumph. He, you know, he stayed in the back of the jury room and, and left the room because he knew that he had failed in trying to keep his paper alive, trying to support Rourke, and he ultimately caved. Uh, and, and he lost his integrity. He lost the thing that he felt like was so important to him internally, even though outwardly it was all, Whatever the public wants, I'll give it to him. He still had an, an, an internal compass that was very strong, but it, ultimately it wasn't strong enough to overcome something that you know took his paper down. 
Yeah, Wynand is a really complex guy, and I do really have to agree that I feel at the end he realized also his missteps as well, and at the end he was trying to please the public, but also praise Proark when the public hated him so that would and then also take on Tui as well and that basically drove his paper into the crown when all the other papers had one school of thought and then his finally switched and I could also say too that it's really interesting the way she wrote the let's say love triangle between Rourke, Dominique, and Wynan, and and how through the first several meetings, Dominique has no idea Wynan's meeting him, and Wynan has no idea of any past at all, but they're both attracted to this greatness, and because also it's a very interesting scene. Um, it's whenever he shows... Dominique or Roark, his private collection. I forget who he shows it to, but he isn't. Well, he starts worried. out to get Dominique first. Yeah. Um, but the point is, he didn't care about what the signature on the bottom is. He cared about the quality of the work. I mean, and, and all of us are kind of the opposite of, especially anytime we're at a museum, it's like, where's the Picasso or the Van Gogh or the this and the that? when there's really priceless stuff everywhere, including the building, hopefully. And yeah, so one of my favorite uh, anecdotes is that when everybody in the Louvre, and, and I think we were even there, and I probably said this to you guys, everybody mm -hmm. rushing to see the Mona Lisa, but on the opposite wall of the, of the mm -hmm. gallery that has the Mona Lisa, um, uh, uh, John the Baptist painting, not, not the, uh, but but Christ and John the Baptist and Mary, it's on the wall there. It is fucking just as priceless as the Mona Lisa, but everybody clamors for the Mona Lisa because it has all of this press and all of this, you know, um, aura around it. But yet, <laughs> on the opposite, if you come out of the gallery and you look on the wall. You know, there's not only that Da Vinci, but there's, I think, at least two other Da Vinci's that are there that are just as priceless. And so why, you know, people people move to the Mona Lisa because of all the press about it, but not exactly. necessarily embracing the beauty and elegance of all of the other priceless works of art that are down that gallery before you go into um, the place to see the Mona Lisa. And also because, like, in reality, if you take out the press component and you just look at it, and, I mean, I'm not trying to hate on the, Mono, the freaking Bono Pisa, but um, just looking at it, and is it truly the best painting ever? She really deserves that amount of press, and, I mean, it's the main thing basically taken at the booth. Oh, I mean, so is that, is that because an art critic said, said that? Yeah, I mean, a pretty good marketer. Because also, why just that one? I mean, it, there is a lot of ambiguity also and a lot of things bred into that piece, but as far as just paintings go, it's so subjective that I would prefer to look at something else. I mean, I'm poor of a surrealist Dali fan because I think bringing that out of the so Dali couldn't have done that, you know, without all of the history as well. But I feel it's way more because of the press and someone on the outside, someone on these sidelines said, yes, this is the most famous, and they put it in movies. And um, and also, if you get in enough positive art critics saying something, the public's just going to roll that way. 
because it's so popular. It's human nature, it seems. And, and so the issue with wine, and I'm glad you said he was a very complex character because he was, um, but ultimately, it, and this is a lesson you know, that I try to share with the students, is that ultimately, Whining gives in. Ultimately, he loses his, you know, his in, in his position of integrity. Right? He um, all of the papers and everything that that was, you know, writing against him, and for him to lose all his reporters and him trying to keep his paper, you know, going on a skeleton crew. Um, he ultimately succumbs to popular opinion or popular judgment and so even though he i believe he had i think he had he, he truly had an internal compass that was equal to dominique and equal to Rourke. um he it wasn't strong enough to to sustain him uh in those very hard times and so what did work do work said fuck the profession i'm going to go and you know uh drill granite out of the out of the mountainside because I don't want to compromise who I am. And there's a lesson there. There's a lesson to try to understand mm -hmm. that at some point you're going to be faced in your career with things that you don't agree with. And so how do you deal with that? If somebody comes to you and says, please design for me a Tudor home, how are you going to handle that? Are you going to go ahead and say, oh, sure, I'll design you a Tudor home? Or are you going to say, you know, that's that's not really me. Um, I've got, you know, four friends over here that do that all the time. Let me give you their, their phone number. And even though you're rubbing nickels to make a dime and, and you know, eating, you know, uh, tomato soup and breadcrumbs, um, you know, th this is a juicy commission. Are you going to snatch it or are you going to stand with your ideals? And it, it's a difficult question. And, and what I was trying to express to the students is that you know, there's definitely going to be at least one time in your career that you're going to be faced with that. Um, but ultimately, there's probably going to be multiple times where you're, you're going to be faced with that decision. And how do you deal with that? Um, and, you know, even in my career, I've, I've, I've been faced with those kinds of situations. You know, I told them one story that, um, you know, I, I had been going back and forth to Shanghai for four months. I was spending, you know, two weeks there and two weeks in the States. And it was killing me because I, you know, I had clients in the States that would want to schedule a two o'clock meeting. Well, when you're in Shanghai, that means two o'clock in the morning. Mm -hmm. So you're getting up at two o'clock in the morning to have a conference call, about, you know, about a project. And then you're trying to go into the office at, you know, nine o'clock. And it just, I was basically a zombie for those four months. So we were working on a project where, so the Chinese are really good about um, copying things. They're not really good about um, wanting things that, uh, unlike Dubai where, you know, they want the most unique, snazziest, you know, let, let my building twirl around and blah, blah, blah. The Chinese are, are in general, and, and I know this, this is, um, you know, it, it's not indicative of every, Chinese developer, but the, the Chinese, they'll see something that they like and they say, well, build me that because I know it works. I like the way it looks. Just build me that. So I went to a meeting. We've been working on this project for four months. We were told by the client. So it was, it was uh, with the Huawei Corporation. And uh, if you don't know who Huawei is, they are the largest telecom communications company in the world. They aren't really allowed in the U.S. because, you know, of the whole Trump thing. But um, they're all over Europe. And, of course, they're all over Asia. I mean, they're, they're giants. So we uh, were tasked to take one of their campuses. It wasn't just a building. It was a whole campus. They wanted to convert it to a training facility. And it was an old warehouse, uh, a series of old warehouses that we were going to convert. And we were told that they, you know, they wanted it to be modern. They wanted it to be progressive. And so we had spent four months developing the designs for this. And we were finally um, asked to come out, or, or we were finally uh, at the point where we could present it to the client. So we boarded a train, took a train for two hours, 
you know, got there and, you know, sat in an ante room for like two hours because Mr. I don't even know his name, but Mr. Wa I'll call him Mr. Huawei. Mr. Huawei was in the room. And um, so we finally get into the room and they've been talking about other kinds of business and our project comes up. So, um, you know, I prepared all the slides, or not slides, but, you know, the PowerPoint. I'm going to walk them through the design. We had these two giant models that we had made that were shipped out there that we were going to, you know, roll out in front of them. And so I get up to the podium and I start to speak and somebody says, whoa, whoa, wait, um, you know, there's another, uh, there's another matter of business that we need to do first. Well, then I find out that Mr. Huawei's son is part of their architecture design group that they have internally. He gets up there and he makes a presentation. So at some point, Mr. Huawei went to Russia. He went to Moscow. And across from the Kremlin, there's a shopping center called the GUM, the G-U-M uh, shopping center. And it's a neoclassical building. It's three stories. It, you know, it's a beautiful piece of, of architecture. And he had given his directive to his son to convert this warehouse into this, um, into replication of the Goom shopping, shopping mall, shopping center. Really? And so his son, his son gets, gets up there and makes a presentation. And it, it was... Um, and, and so I'm sitting there, and I've got a translator sitting next to me who's literally whispering in my ear, translating, you know, on the fly of everything that's being said. And at some point, Mr. Huawei says, no, 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 the, the, the sign that is over that shop, um, I remember it being like, you know, two feet over that way. Um, I mean, his, his recollection and his insistence on it being the exact replica of what was there was so insistent and so you know they went on and on in, in for another hour so I'm sitting there for another hour with a translator in my ear I'm not able to present my design and uh, at the end um, Mr. Wally gets up and he's shaking hands with everybody and, he <laughs> and I say what the hell I've been working on this for four months I, I take a train for four hours here I wait in your lobby for two hours and I'm ready to make my presentation. You sideline me and now I've had to wait for another hour while you present another scheme over this, you know, on the same project. What's going on? And the translator um, leaned it into my ear and said, listen, this project is yours. If you want it, you know, you can have it, but you have to do, you, you have to replicate this building. And I uh -huh. turned to my colleague who was in the, the Shanghai office and I said, we're not going to do this. We are not going to, we're not going to do it. We're not going to replicate something that already exists out in the world. It doesn't make any sense. And we're not going to punish the 14 other people in the office who are going to have to draw and detail this building over the next three years. Um, uh, we're, we're not going to, we're, we're just not going to do that. And it was about a, a two and a half million dollar commission. And so it was really hard to swallow, but you know, I went back to the powers that be, you know, in my firm and said, yeah, it's a great commission. You know, it's a lot of money. And I know that the office needs this kind of income, but why would we do this? You know, we shouldn't be doing this. And so, you know, that was a moment you know, and I've had other moments in my career, but that was a very significant moment of me saying, we are not going to replicate something that already exists out there. I mean, if, if they would have at least given us the commission to say, here's your starting point, now look at ways in which you can improve it or, or do something different, I might have reconsidered. But they wanted us to fucking literally duplicate this thing. Yeah, I mean, it is absolutely stunning and beautiful, and it looks like the Milan Galleria on steroids, on Russian steroids, because um, it is... Oh, are you looking at the image of it? Yeah, it is, I mean, outstanding, and I mean... It's a beautiful it was built, building. Yeah, but also it was built a century ago, and so 
because of that nature. And I mean, especially being at a firm where you can turn that down. And I mean, I'm not even saying that some people can't, but I mean, I'm sure someone built it for them. And, and that's really what we are trying to ask in the crux of this discussion and the class is to be an architect what should you be and in that you have to be able to stand your ground and not completely copy and build what's already been done and and absolutely old and not to say a lot of these aspects are absolutely phenomenal and should be copied but aspects of it not taught the pie pastors and the neoclassical detailing like you don't even really need all that you i mean it, i i can envision something super clean and modern but the same programmatic party and spatial party which is essentially what we did is we set up you know, we had all of these diagrams to show kind of the classical proportion of what we were trying to do um, in the, the rhythm of, where, you know, how we'd established the column bays and, and all of that, but it was a, in a very modern language. And we didn't even, ultimately, we didn't even get to present it. So I had four months of work just down the drain. I had, you know, so two models that, uh, I mean, they paid us for it. And, you know, we didn't lose any money on it, but we didn't obviously get the two and a half million dollar commission either. So them presenting that they basically wanted a copy or that they literally wanted a copy of Tagum, was that completely out of the blue? Like was, because it seems, so, are they trying to basically cram all of the programmatic elements of the campus into the GOOM, essentially? So this forwards our discussion to the Rainier de Graaf um, uh, a book, which talks about, so, you know, he's got the first part, he's got the middle part, and he's got the end part. Well, the middle part is all about um, his journey through these three or four projects, both in England, uh, in the Middle East uh, and in China. And, you know, it's kind of a month by month. You know, this is what's happening this month. This is what happened this month. Oh, well, this was reversed. This was done this way. Um, and, and it was a very apt, the reason I, I, I love that section of the book because it was a very apt uh, description of, um, you know, part of my career over, you know, the last probably seven, eight years that, to, and, and I say that to answer your question, no, we had no idea um, because the people who were informing us weren't necessarily in the know of what Mr. Huawei truly wanted. Um, we were told one thing and, 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 and so we were delivering that. We were also told that he, he did of classical architecture, which is why we spent all of this time creating diagrams to explain why the building you know, in, in its redesign would be classically proportioned, just used um, in, in, in delineated in, in a, a much more modern vocabulary. Um, but we didn't even get a chance to express that. We didn't get, even get a chance to, to, uh, to make our presentation. Uh, and that's what happens in these when, you, when you're working internationally, you don't necessarily understand what people's motivations are. It's a little bit better in the, in the States because sometimes uh, you, can, you, know, you can guess correctly what people's motivations are. And most of the time with developers, it's what the bottom line is. And if you can present to them a different way of doing things and create a better bottom line for it, um, you know, they'll buy into it no matter what it looks like. It doesn't, you know, in one sense, it doesn't matter to them what it looks like. It's just, what, what is my return on my investment? Um, but in, in different parts of the world, you don't always get the whole story. And so you're grasping at straws and the political and uh, the political climate you know, changes uh, and the aspirational desires of this client or that client evolves. And you're not always privy to that. And so you do the best you can with the information that, that is presented to you, but 
Um, there are times when it pans out great, and there are times when it, it really goes awry. And that's one of those times in my career that it really went south. Um, we had no idea. We were totally blindsided. Well, I mean, I sat in that meeting with the translator in my ear, aghast at what I was hearing. And, um, and I had, I had no ability. I mean, I couldn't say, Mr. Huawei, we've got, you know, 45 minute presentation to give to you. Just, you know, give us 45 minutes or, or give us a half an hour and let me show you what we've done. It was, you know, when he was finished with his discussion with his son, he kind of stood up and left the room. Yikes. And I'm sure that was absolutely quite frustrating and even just bewildering of it being so, so unexpected and such a change. So for y'all competing against others uh, explicitly at that time or yeah. no? So yeah, that is um interesting how they said, okay, this is what we want actually. Because I mean, I, I assume y'all had had some coordination with the client throughout the design process before the pitch, no? I mean, um... Yeah. Um, it was, uh, we were talking to the, you know, second or third tier down, because we didn't uh, have for Huawei. We, we could only rely on what his sycophants were, were telling us. And, and so I keep telling the students, I said, what is the name of this class? The Architect of Contemporary Society. Well, these are the kinds of issues, you know, certainly if you're competing at an international stage, these are the kinds of issues that, that you're facing. Um, and again, there, there's a decision point that you have to make. There's a, uh, you know, there's a point where you have to say, this is where my career is going to take me or, or I'm going to go another direction. And, uh, and these are all hard issues. These are all very difficult things that you have to face. And... You know, I, I'm not so sure I was even supported in turning down the commission. Um, Two and a half million dollars, like. <laughs> I mean, you know, nobody nobody said you know the next day you're fired, um, but at the same time, it was you know that office struggled for the next couple of years, and in you know really building up clientele and really building up um, you know its ability to be self-sustaining. And, and that would have contributed greatly to the financial bottom line. But I think from an integrity point of view, it would have been probably the worst thing, you know, for that office. And it's, it, as I understand, it's done, done pretty well, you know, since then. And also, if you're doing a direct copy, it's legit plagiarism. So you couldn't even submit it for any kind of recognition whatsoever, which is something a firm kind of needs for that social proof. It's just that question of how do you attack those awards? Is it for the intention of having them? Or is it about just doing such quality work, it gets hopefully recognized. But if, if that's the goal, that seems to be something quite detrimental. But practice something you... Um, pensions just earlier about how it can be kind of different when you're actually in a room and, and you're speaking with the decision makers and I'm speaking and I'm speaking about both actual like commission projects but also awards and because also it depends like almost every different project you deal with different decision makers you know so it depends on what they are interested in so how much of trying to extract out who they are to give them what they want to hear like how much of that is just along the same realm of placating to the masses or how much of that is just doing your job and research to have a deeper understanding and i think there's a fine line, right? Well, well, there is. I mean, um, if you look at some, you know, some architects, and you know, we talk about. I always ask the, the students the question, like, okay, you know, you know, remind me who the who the whites are, and, and, and so that's like an ongoing. <laughs> oh, but an ongoing. Okay, it's you know these five architects. Okay, well then who are the grays, and then who are the silvers, and. 
and you know what are you know what are their pensions? What are their their points of view? I, th I think there are architects that have taken the position, um, rightfully or wrong, wrongfully, that um, whoever, you know, like Rourke, who, whoever wants my architecture will come to me eventually. Um, I don't necessarily, and, and, and so, you know, what I try to share with the students is that that's part of your, the decision of your career as well, is that at some point, you're going to have to decide what kind of architect you are. Are you the architect that says, you know, the world be damned, if you want my architecture, you'll come to me and I'll wait tables until I find a client. Or are you the architect that says, you know, I want to understand what my client's wants and needs are and I'm going to try to uh, educate them along the process and try to do the best building I can for them within the terms that they can understand. Or are you the architect that says, um, you know, whatever you want, I'll, I'll, I'll design for you. Just, you know, tell me what you want. And, and, and maybe there are more than those three general categories, but I think in my career, I've probably been more in the middle than, than on, on the two extremes. And there are very few people who can live on the extreme. Well, there are very few people who can live on the upper extreme. There are a lot of architects that are out there on the lower extreme. Unfortunately. Um, and... Uh, in, and for me, I think it's it's an issue of uh, I always take an opportunity to do a building to educate my clients, and, and not that they're you know dumb or uneducated or um, you know without the capacity to understand, but they don't build buildings every. I mean, even developers um, who who do build buildings all the time. I think it's I think it's my role as an architect, and you've heard me say this over and over and over again. If somebody can think of themselves, why the, why the fuck did, are they going to hire me? My role is to think of things that they cannot think of themselves, and so you know, a developer is kind of locked locked into thinking of the you know what's the return on investment, and and that's great because that is their role. My role as an architect is to provide them a design solution that gives them the best return on investment at the same time challenges the notion of what they do you know every, every single day you know is there another way to think about doing tilt walls is there another thing a way to think about doing a four-story building is there another way to think about doing a campus is there another way to think about uh, you know doing these elements that is um, beneficial to them but yet at the same time stretches them um, Emotionally, it stretches them, um, you know, architecturally, philosophically, uh, because I think that that's what my role is. And so my role is to challenge the accepted attitudes that are out there and, and to try to look for unique solutions that ultimately provide a better return for whatever my clients need. Um, and again, if they can, if they need me for a glorified drafting service, I'm not interested. And that's me. There are other people out there that have great careers and they, they do what they want to. And it's not a value judgment necessarily, um, although you can apply a value judgment to it. Um, you know, if, if, you know, there are, the other story I told is that, you know, when I was uh, younger in my career, I worked for a firm in in Dallas that one part of that firm, the bread and butter of that firm, not the only source of income, but a, a pretty good source of income was they did, um, uh, they, had, they had one principal there that just did circuit cities. They did them over and over and over and over again. So they had to design, they did the site adapt, they'd crank the shit out, they'd make, um, you know, if you're lucky on a project, you might make 15% profit. They were making 70, 75% profit on these projects. Printing money. And, and so proportionally, I mean, you know, they were, they were benefiting the firm. And, uh, and, and the person who was doing it loved it. I mean, and it, it, she didn't want to do anything else. I mean, she didn't, want to be, she didn't want to challenge her clients. She didn't want to do anything else but, you know, do these circuit cities over and over again, which are now, you know, uh, you know, it's a bankrupt company. I'm not sure what she's doing now. <laughs> um, 
and, and, and she was totally satisfied doing that. And so can you assess a value judgment against her to say, well, her career is a waste? It's difficult for me to say that. I know that she provided a va valuable service to the firm um, in, in providing, you know, this, this income so that, you know, we could pursue other things that were theoretically more interesting. Um, exactly. Another, another anecdote, and I think I've told you this before, another anecdote was when I was first out of graduate school, I worked for a firm that did a lot of um, these riverboat casinos. Hmm. And um, what I was astounded by was that the design director for the firm was a longtime academic from Princeton. He was in charge of the, the graduate school for 15 years. He had a pedigree as long as my arm. I mean, he was a well-respected academic. He left the academic world to come work for the commercial world. And he was in support of the firm pursuing this work. And um, I was astounded by that. I was actually pissed off by it. And until it dawned on me one day, well, the reason why I was in support of it is because the work that he was doing was making like a 1% profit or, or, uh, or making no profit or losing money. And all, all of this riverboat casino work was bringing in money hand over fist. And so that work was paying for his stuff, which is why he was in support of it. And so, again, you've got to figure out where you are in the pantheon of architecture, uh, find your own place and find the thing that makes you happy and satisfied. And, you know, do you shake hands with the devil to do that? From time to time, you might, might have to. Um, and he was willing to do that. I mean, I wasn't in a position, I mean, I was just a worker bee, so I wasn't in a position to say yes or no to that kind of, of thing. I probably would have said no, but that's me. Um, because I didn't think that it, it furthered the, the you know, ultimate um, goals of where the firm wanted to go. But he did from a selfish point of view because it helped pay for the work that he was doing. And I don't, disre I don't have any less respect for him for doing that. I, I, you know, I understand why he did that. Um, but it's not a decision I think I would make. And so everybody, I guess my point is on this long diatribe <laughs> is that every point, you know, you're going to have these decision moments in your career that are difficult to make. And that's the reality of being an architect in contemporary society. Boom. And that was all just so on point because it's not as if you, you can really 100% of the time sit there and say, I not to compromise at all whatsoever. And that itself is as well because there are going to be times that we as individuals are wrong and and also it's the client's money so there's that negotiation between whose building is it it's like yes i'm signing it and i am bringing it to fruition but if the owner doesn't like it and they sue you i mean yeah if you end up in and it and the history of books like the Farnsworth House in Nice, then yes, it might be worth it. But a lot, it's really interesting to me how a lot of these pinnacle houses, especially of modernism from the from Corbs of Pillis of Bois to almost anything Frankfurt Pride did, people complained about it. But and especially the Florence Port and the Pillars of Paul, which were basically pinned. I mean, I mean, Sloan argues that the history of pot, of modernism funnels through the Villas of Paul and through Corp. I think that's a little much, but it's it, a little narrow. Yeah, but it does express a lot of it, a good chunk of it, and so. It was always so interesting to be in school that we're studying these buildings that are uninhabitable. And and from a theoretical sense, yes, 
it makes sense, quote unquote, rationally, but still almost starting at that reason is almost potentially arbitrary. I mean, that that's absolutely not what Ian Prant thought. It, it was for the school of thought of that reason is uniquely human. And so in that, we must use that. But I think if we discard all emotion or all, or all other aspects that make us human, I think that also falls short. And that also will feed into our following discussions, especially about postmodernism, and that, that be quite interesting. So true. Yeah. Well, and so in looking at the fountain again, and after printing through all of these really pinnacle architects text throughout time, they really share a lot of pro art from Bruno Lesky, Burnham, Prentwood, Brighton, Gropius. There's a lot, I'd say it's like 80% Rourke, if not even more, where Philip Johnson's probably mostly Keating and or Tui, because even in The Fountainhead, Tui finally makes that switch and said, modernism is great. It's the gem of mankind. And so, and that also really was the final impale in Keating's coffin because he was instantly old school and out of date, you know? So if you stick to what you think people want, it's going to change. And once it changes, what are you going to do? Can you evolve and adapt? And, and really the only person we, we've seen do that is Philip Johnson because everyone else, yeah, they kind of reinvented themselves, but it, it was still themselves, like Frank Spud, Bright, and Corb. But I, I, to me, think about all of, this, of these architects they have a certain style or certain, I mean, styles like an overblown term. Exactly. I mean, his aesthetic and style is, is uh, I'm not even sure where to be kin on that one because it is such a hodgepodge at times of um, history. Well, I mean, and, and we'll have a chance to talk about Venturi in a lot more detail, but, you know, he, he was one that eschewed um, you know, style uh, because he was building for what he thought was the right thing for that specific project. Um, and Phil, you're absolutely right. Phil Johnson is the ultimate architectural chameleon uh, who reinvented himself like Madonna, you know, every, every several years uh, and, and kept himself current uh, in that way. But, you know, Johnson's ultimate um, contribution to architecture was his philanthropy, was his ability to see the excellence in others and help promote them. And I will always be um, grateful to him for that, even though I really don't like his architecture uh, at all uh, in any aspect. Um, but that's, that's my personal opinion. Um, I've got to, to take a conference call here in five minutes. So, anything else you want to talk about? Um, one thing I wrote down um, as we've been discussing architecture critics is um, just they want that ability to control the outcome without actually doing the work. And I think that's the big distinction. Are you in the game or are you on the sidelines? And if you're just on the sidelines, which is fine, but what is the actual highest ethical role that you can take and it's obviously not trying to get power and um and also one thing that has really stuck out to me in this age of real identity politics and this whole intersectionalism idea is that when you intersect enough the it always distills down to the individual, like the ultimate mind thority, the ultimate mind thority is the individual. It, it, it is, I mean, like, even though we can all have similar and some shared 
because no one has had the exact same. So trying to have a totem pole instead of flipping it, and like me, I actually somewhat agree with intersexualism. I just push it out to infinity, and it's the individual, you know. And um, to me, that's the biggest takeaway from the Fountainhead, and she pushes the extremes because how else are people going to listen, you know? Well, I love the Fountainhead because she sets up the extremes um, that you can then juxtapose your own position either for or against those extremes exactly. or against Gail Wining, you're either against Dominique, you're either for or against Rourke, you're for or against Keating. And, 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 and there might be aspects in which you are partially for one and, and, and partially for another. Uh, and there are different times in your careers where, where um, you embrace, you know, several of those personalities. Uh, but I, I love the fact I mean, that's the goal of great writing is to set up uh, characters that represent these extremes that um, can, uh, you know, like, like um, uh, you know, that can float in and out of your existence, float in and out of your life. Um, uh, and, and, and so I really appreciate that about the fountainhead. Yeah, and... The last thing is how to be all great literature is just a psychological analysis of being and it's projected onto the exterior because that's what we can really understand. We can understand relationships between people a lot easier than we can the, the relationships between ourselves. And, and I mean like everything from the bits up until now, it really seems that that great literature is really trying to understand us as humans and really project it out. But all um, touch a go, and I enjoyed this a lot, and um, I'm excited about our text one as well. Me too. All right. I love you. See you later. Same. All right. Okay. Bye.